My guest, Michael Crummy, is the author of eight books of poetry, a book of short stories, a book of nonfiction, and four celebrated novels, including the Giller Prize-nominated River Thieves. His new book is The Innocence, a story of survival in which a brother and sister confront the limits of human endurance and their own capacity for loyalty and forgiveness in an isolated cove on Newfoundland's northern coastline. Michael, welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I was just saying before we flipped on the microphones uh, how beautiful this book is. Mm. It is harsh, I think. Uh, The terrain that you describe is harsh and unforgiving. I grew up right on the ocean. You now live on the ocean in Newfoundland. And you learn a very healthy respect for that big body of water. Yeah, absolutely. I I lived in Kingston, Ontario for a long time. Oh, yeah. And people used to say to me, oh, well, the lake must remind (laughs) you of the ocean. I was like, not at all. Not at all. Because the the ocean has always scared the shit out of me. Mm -hmm. And and it is beautiful. And I love spending so much time on it and around it. But uh, the more time you spend and the more you realize... This thing could kill you. Yeah. Uh, very At its easily. Whim. At it, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Without warning, really. Don't walk on the black rocks. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I, I think that is something that uh, I, I've always, I was going to say, tried to make a part of, but I just can't avoid making a part of mm-hmm. the books, you know? Like, they're um, both my parents grew up in outports, and just hearing their stories of. Well, you grew up in mining towns. Yeah. And and so, you know, my idea of Newfoundland uh, is is not exactly that. Your experience, I think, is different than what people think of when they typically think of the Newfoundland experience. Your father and mother weren't fishermen or, or, you know, worked in in that industry. Uh, They worked in the other industry that kind of fed that province for so long. Well, it's funny because... uh, Buckins, my hometown, mm-hmm. is pretty much the geographical center of Newfoundland, right? So I always say it's as far away from salt water as you can get and still be in Newfoundland. <laughs> but the the funny thing about it is that everybody who lived and worked there were people born in the outports. Right. And like my dad fished from the age of nine until he was about 18. Right. Um, so I always say I wasn't born in an outport, but I was raised by an outport. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and I think the that the character that was created in people who lived on the ocean, those are the people who raised me. So I, I feel like I uh, was, I, I, I grew up with the same kind of uh, respect, respect yeah. and, you know, the same kind of, uh, kind of uh, almost daily awareness of how fragile life can be, right. you know, that sense that you, you never know when your time might come. Right. And I think you probably got a sense of that from the people around you working the mines as well. I mean, that could not have been an easy or safe way to make a living. Yeah. No, I, I mean, there were a couple of cave-ins mm-hmm. that I remember from from when I was a youngster. Nobody died while in my lifetime that are but certainly people did die in that mine and that was always a consideration for sure now a lot of people who grew up uh in small places like this uh sort of remote places like this want to get out immediately you didn't really have that sense about you from my reading anyway i mean you went to school away you went to school in kingston and and you did leave but you've gone back but what was it or what is it about 
the the culture, about the place, about everything about Newfoundland that keeps you going back and that kept you there. I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I yeah, I never planned to leave. Uh, and certainly, like my hometown, the mine shut down, and we left there in 1979, and I was heartbroken. Really. You know, and a lot of my friends, even then, I was 14. Even then, a lot of my friends were talking about getting the hell out of there. Yeah. But I, well, in I the was, 70s, the, the, uh, most young people that like left, yeah. ran from the East Coast. Yeah. I'm, I'm of that generation, yeah. grew yeah. up down there, and went to Alberta where the jobs were. Yeah. Right? And, but I I'd never had that sense. And uh, I went to school in St. John's, did an mm-hmm. undergrad there. And I had an English degree. And I thought, what the hell do I do with that? I mean, grad school was the only thing I could think of. So that's why I ended up going to Kingston. I I didn't have any sense of uh, wanting to get out or wanting to stay away. Mm -hmm. I ended up staying in Kingston for almost 13 years just because I found work there after I dropped out. um, But it's funny. uh, I guess I'm a bit of a drifter anyway. Like, I didn't plan to move home either. Right. Uh, I didn't pine. But um, when I published my first novel with Doubleday, I realized I could move home without having to look for work. Right. And money changes everything. Money changes yeah. everything. And but even then, it wasn't like an automatic. Yeah. Uh, the thing that made me move home was the realization that if I didn't move home at that point, I probably never would move home. Right. And the thought of never going back was the thing that made me think, okay, no, I've got to. This is what I have to do at this point. Do you have family there still? My my parents were in St. John's yeah. at the time, so uh, that's where I moved home to. Yeah, and uh, and I was a bit nervous. I wasn't sure if I would feel like I belong there anymore. Right. But I, within about six months, uh, I, I remember thinking, "What the hell was I doing up in Ontario all that time?" <laughs> because there was, a, and I don't know exactly what it is, but there was a real sense that I belonged at home mm-hmm. in a way that I never would anywhere else. And there was a lot of just unspoken things that people understood about each other. And, um, and uh, yeah, so I've never, that's, that's not anything, I've never had a moment's regret about that move home, you know, and it does feel like I, I've been back home long enough now to have a love-hate relationship <laughs> with the place. <laughs> but but it still feels like the place I belong. It's interesting when you talk about getting a, a an English degree and then you're like, well, what am I going to do with this down here? But there's such a rich tradition of storytelling from the East Coast yeah. and from Newfoundland that the idea of, of translating that, taking the next step and putting it down on paper is seems like a natural. But well, but most people down there, there's a thriving arts community down there now. I'm not sure there was in the yeah. 70s. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that would have been, for me, um, mid-80s. Mm. But even then, uh, the notion that a kid from Buckins could be a writer right. and make a career of that, that was just ridiculous. Had I you mean, ever met a writer? Uh, I, in my English degree, there were a couple of right. classes where they brought in a local writer. Yeah. Um, and in high school, Kevin Major came in. I remember that. Yeah. And uh, in his reading, he swore. <laughs> and I thought, man, we're in school and this guy's swearing and nobody's making a fuss. I like maybe I could get into that racket. I want that job. <laughs> <laughs> but it it uh I mean it's really hard to remember now. Yeah. what it was like then just because Newfoundland writers have made such a mark. Yeah. And it 
it's almost taken for granted now that every year there will be some Newfoundland writer on the prize shortlist and on the bestseller list and uh, will be published internationally. But uh, when uh, I often tell this story about Bernice Morgan, who wrote Random Passage, yeah, yeah. and uh, her agent when she was trying when she was shopping that book was Jack McClellan. Oh wow! Wow! And even Jack, who loved the book, uh, felt like he had to warn her. He said, "I don't think I'm going to be able to find you a publisher in Toronto." because no one outside of Newfoundland wants to read a book about Newfoundland. And he was right in that sense that he, he wasn't able to find a publisher. Um, and, you know, and then the shipping news happened. Yeah. And then the colony of unrequited dreams happened. And then it seemed like like Toronto publishers were flying to St. John's and kind of beating the bushes, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, looking yeah. for somebody. And, uh, and luckily, there were a ton of great young writers at the time, um, and so people like Lisa Moore and Michael Winter and Kathleen Winter and um, on and on, um, they we we were kind of around at the right time. Well, I think that there is probably something to be said for how on the East Coast, so many of the things that has sustained people for generations, fishing dried up. Uh, the mining, probably not as going a concern as it had once been. In my part of the world, in Nova Scotia, uh, fishing and paper and pulper, ju- uh, pulp and paper just decimated, right. gone. And people started to think in, differently about what they would do. And um, in Nova Scotia, I know that it led to uh, a music scene. It led to people turning to the arts. And I get the sense that that's what happened in, in Newfoundland. And people started to pay attention. All of a sudden, bands like Great Big Sea are coming out of there. And, yeah. and, and you know, there's this big wave, Davenant Doyle, and, and, and people coming out of Newfoundland and getting national attention. Yeah. And I, I think that uh, it's hard to say how that happened exactly, but it definitely is an extension of the the oral culture and the mm-hmm. tradition of people having to entertain themselves. Yeah. That was definitely part of, it just was natural for people to know how to play an instrument and to know how to entertain and tell a good story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that translated into a fantastic theater scene in the 70s. And yeah. that was really the start of it, I think. Yeah. And that has kind of transitioned now where the, the music and the literary side, I think, is, is more prominent and uh, increasingly film work. Yeah. Um, but I, I do think that's a natural extension of, of the culture of the place. And, uh, and it's also a result of the fact that I think my generation is the first generation of Newfoundlanders to sort of go to university. It was just ex- expected that that's mm-hmm. what kids would do when they finished high school. Right. And that opened doors for people to do, to do things or to think about careers that otherwise, you know, they would have ended up working in the mill or at the mine or on the on the water. Absolutely. Know? So it was a really, it was a pretty exciting time. What number is this? Number eight? Nine? No. For in total books? In total. About 11, I think. 11. I think, yeah. And it's your fourth novel, right? Uh, fifth. Oh. Yeah. It's well, hard to keep track. It is. <laughs> and how many words is that in total? <laughs> One million words. Yeah, you should get a little like prize that. when you hit a million <laughs> right. words published. Right, or they should cut you off, one or the other. <laughs> that should be your limit. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Start writing shorter books from That's now right. on. Uh, well, congratulations on it. Thanks. And you've been writing for a long time. You've, you've studied, you've done this, but you wrote in secret. Yeah. And I, I was reading about this. Um, what was it about your work that you were so shy about? I, I mean, I don't think it was the work per se. It was the, it was more the sense of, 
again, who the hell did I think I was? Mm. You know, and there was there's something. Uh, <laughs> you have to have a certain amount of ego, I think, to think you have something worth saying. That My ideas are so important. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I didn't. I, I had enough of that to write things on paper, but I didn't have quite enough of that to like put it out in the world, yeah. or at least to put it out in the world with my face behind it. Right. So even um, I started uh, sending stuff out to literary magazines and that sort of stuff. Mm. So and I published all through my twenties in those magazines. Yeah. But I remember uh, when I finally just thought, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to have to, for example, do public readings. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did my first public reading in Kingston, and uh, I was sort of the undercard for somebody coming through town. And uh, so they had posters up around town, and I had a lot of friends coming up to me saying, and they would just sort of do this, what the hell thing? (laughs) Like, what is, (laughs) where did this come from? Because I really, I really just could not, and I, I think part of it too was that anyone I'd ever met in university who wanted to be an author or wanted to be an artist, they were not people I wanted to hang out with. At all. Right, and 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 so often, once you have written a book and it comes out, everyone says, "Oh, well, I write as well," or "I write." It it, it doesn't feel to a lot of people like <clears throat> it's something that takes a great deal of you know years of dedication. Right. It, it, I've always wanted to write a story, the the book of my life. Well, yeah, yeah, and you know, and related <laughs> to that is this whole uh, uh, debate about whether or not. Uh, writing can be taught and whether creative writing classes are a waste of time. And I'm shocked by the writers who say that it's a waste of time Mm -hmm. or that you can't teach it. I mean, you can't teach talent. That's true. But there's a craft to it. Like nobody makes the same argument about art classes. Right. Right. No one says, oh, yeah, you can't teach art or you can't teach someone to play the piano. Right. It's it's exactly the same, and there's it's years of dedication to the craft before you write anything worth looking at. At least that's been my experience. It was mine too. Yeah, it was mine too. Yeah. So, I think part of the secrecy for me was I had a sneaking suspicion that I really sucked, <laughs> and I did not I did not want anyone to confirm that for me. Right. Right. I thought. Was it like taking the dream away or something well, if that I, happened? I think. I, I, my feeling was that if I put myself out there that way and and found out I was really bad, uh, I just wouldn't have the intestinal fortitude to carry on. Right. You know, I would just quit. And I didn't want to quit. So I, I just carried on in my own secret little way for a long time. What did you imagine would happen that you would end up teaching writing or what what was the end game? Yeah, I don't, I mean... There wasn't that's, one. <laughs> that's talking like uh, <laughs> I'm more of a planner than I am. I, I, it was, I was writing because that was the, the one thing in my life that I had found and thought, I want to do that. Yeah. There was really nothing else. Never expected ever to make any money at it. So I always assumed that uh, I would be writing on the side and having some kind of straight job. Right. Um, and I think the only thing I had in my head as a goal was like a slender book of poems that you could go and find in a bookstore or a library somewhere. Yeah. I think that would, that felt like the the most I could hope for right. in life. And I, I, you know, when I had my first book published, I was 30 years old. I'd been slogging at it for about 13 years by then. Wow. And uh, 
I remember telling my dad I had this book coming out, and he said, oh, you know, that's really good. And his first question was, uh, how much are they paying you? Yeah. And I said, 750 bucks. <laughs> and I could see in the look on his face, like, so this is something you've dedicated your life to, right? This has been your calling. Yeah. And this is what you've put all of your resources into. And at 30 years of age, they're paying you $750. And you're happy as a pig and shit. Like you are thrilled. <laughs> and he, he was mystified by it. He really, really supportive, really great, never said a word. But just the look on his face, you could tell he did not understand at all what I was getting out of that. You know? That's hilarious. And, and what you get out of it is worth so much more than money. Yeah. You know, when the first book arrives and you see your name on the spine... It's yeah. a it's a it's a big deal, especially when you've wanted it for so long. Yeah, it's true, and and I I always say that if you're in it f for for money, you're in the wrong business. Yeah, and uh, I mean there are some people who get lucky, mm -hmm. and I have been incredibly lucky over the last twenty years, and uh, have not had to have a day job mm -hmm. for for quite a while, but. Uh, that's not something I ever expected yeah. and not something I could have planned for. Right. You know, that all of those things, it's all about timing and luck and like there's just a million things that go into ending up in the position I'm in and things you have zero control over. So I think you ha the only reason to write is because you can't not. Right. And if that's true, I, I wish I could remember the name of, of this artist. It was a woman who was teaching, because uh, I tell this story all the time. Um, she was teaching a, a, a painting course. Right. And it was a 12-week course or something. And she's, at the start of the first class, she said, I'm going to spend the next 12 weeks trying to talk you out of being a painter. Right. And if I can't talk you out of it, then you might have what it takes to, to make a life yeah. of it. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, you know, that... It, it's only the people who just don't really have a choice mm -hmm. who end up um, getting through the bullshit yeah. that accompanies it. Well, and because it's not easy. No. That's the thing. It is not an easy thing to do. Um, it is something that takes uh, effort, time. You hit roadblocks. You have this idea. And every time I've written a book, and I write nonfiction, so it's much different than, than what you do. Uh, but every time I write one, I'm convinced it's the last one. Yeah. This is always my thing. It's like, well, I've had a pretty good run, yeah, but, right. but this is probably going to be it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, uh, people often ask me when I have a book coming out, you know, well, what do you hope for the book? Like, what are you? And I always say, well, I hope it does well enough that they'll let me do another one. This is a, a, a book that, is based on a story that you read of an 18th century clergyman. So where did you find that story and how does it eventually sort of weave its way down into the book that's sitting in front of me here? Well, yeah, it's... Uh, it's a journey. It's a journey. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's something... I was in the archives doing research for a completely different project. And this is the, the provincial archives at the rooms in St. John's. And, uh, and when I'm ever, whenever I'm in there, I just poke around because there's... Stuff in there I find endlessly fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I found, and it wasn't even a story. It was a one-paragraph thing. I can't remember. It might have been in a newspaper or a journal. Don't remember if it was the clergyman writing it or if it was somebody writing the right. story of this clergyman. But it was one paragraph about this guy who was traveling around the coast of Newfoundland and happened on a brother and sister living alone, orphan brother and sister living alone in, a, in an isolated cove. And the sister was pregnant. 
And the, the clergyman, of course, assumed, and probably quite rightly, that the brother was the father of the yep. child. Uh, and immediately got on his clergyman's horse and, and went aboard of them. And the brother ended up driving him off with a rifle. <laughs> and, uh, and that was it. That was everything there was in terms of detail. The, nothing more about uh, exactly what time right. period this was happening or what, how the brother and sister ended up in this circumstance or what happened to them after. Nothing. And I, I immediately thought that would be a fascinating story to try and tell. Yeah, so the, the cogs start turning. And then I stuck a spoke in the or stuck something <laughs> in the spokes of that cog, and I was like, I'm not going near that. I'm not touching right. it. And so I, I just, I didn't even make a note of it. I didn't, I wouldn't able, be able to find that again if I wanted to. Right. And, and that was years ago. Like that might be seven, eight, nine, oh, man. 10 wow. years ago. Wow. Um, and the, the, those youngsters never left me. Yeah. And I think what I thought about most was trying to compare my own childhood to, to theirs and thinking of the unbelievable confusion of moving from childhood through adolescence, even in a, even in a circumstance where I had some resources, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I, I had supportive parents, I had friends I could talk to somewhat about yeah. this sort of stuff. There were the skin mags we could find at the dump. <laughs> there was a sex education class. Right, right, right. And even with all of those bits and pieces that you could try to cobble together to make a picture of what was happening to you, you had no freaking idea yeah. what it was, how you were supposed to respond to it, like how that worked out in the world. Mm-hmm. Nothing. And trying to transfer that experience in terms of what these these youngsters would have been facing. Yeah, with no resources, just the two of them. Just the two of them. And having to survive. I mean, that the, the story of survival yeah. is yeah. compelling enough. Yeah, and, you know, I don't know what it was like for other people, but for me it kind of felt like there was um, like an, an outside being that sort of took up, sort of occupied my life. Right. And uh, I knew it was part of me, but it felt separate somehow. And uh, I didn't understand its motivations, although I was willing to go with them. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, there was, I, I just, so I thought to write that book would be trying to f- get inside the heads of two children who were trying to make peace with these changes that were coming over them with no idea where they were coming from and not even other adults to look at to try and guess at yeah. what what it could lead to or and so the really the whole book for me was trying to figure out a way to make that feel like a real process is that the muse i don't know i mean it's such an overused term and i often think if you wait for the muse to hit then you'll never write yeah. you it, it's a, you know you have to get in but it sounds different than it just being a job and sitting down and writing these words on paper right well i mean i, I i'm not a muse guy yeah um, and, uh, I, I hate writers to talk about, Me too. you know, like <laughs> the characters took over yeah. or, you know, God was speaking through or whatever the hell they say. <laughs> that just sounds like so much bullshit to me. Yeah. But, uh, but inspiration is a real thing, I think. And it's yep. a mysterious thing that I don't understand. Um, but I, I do have to have a feeling that there's a book in front of me, mm-hmm. uh, in order to be able to sit down and do the work. 
And that takes a long time. Yeah. Um, and with this one in particular, like I rejected it over and over and over as a, as a real possibility. Yeah, yeah. Partly because I was afraid I wouldn't be able to do it justice. Uh, and partly because uh, it was, it's just such a complex and uh, fraught situation mm-hmm. that I thought, I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want to be the one with the name on the cover yeah. of a book like that. <laughs> and uh, um, so it, it was only because uh, I I could not banish it. Yeah. Like I could not put it in the desk drawer and leave it there that uh, I finally sat down and took a shot at it. But so so that's the inspiration side of things, right. I think, is that story that will not leave you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, it's it's, you know, that 99% perspiration thing yeah right it's like sitting in a chair and and doing the work yeah because there is no other way no there's no other way to do this uh, young writers will often ask me you know what's your method and I was like I, I, I don't really have a method hmm. and and I mean maybe you do maybe people do but my method is to sit in front of my computer and work yeah yeah and that's that's the method yeah. I'd like to have a cup of tea while I do it <laughs> Maybe that's maybe that's the key. I, yeah, don't, I don't know. know. Just do it. The last three books, I I, I decided uh, w- when I started writing Galore, what I decided was uh, I was going to set myself a word minimum per day, mm. and so I, I just decided I would write at least five hundred words a day. Yeah, and I often do more than that. Yeah, um, but I f- found that even on my worst days, I could scrape out five hundred. Um, and with this book, with the Innocence. Uh, I kind of got pushed off the ledge by my editor, yeah. Martha. Um, and uh, so, uh, like, March 1st, a year, a year and a half ago, I sat down, and uh, and I wrote every day for about three and a half months. Mm. And I had that 500-word minimum, so every day I got at least that. And some days it was, like, just a... 501. Well, <laughs> if, if my wife was anywhere within hearing range, I would be shouting out the count as I right. headed towards it, like, yeah. 487, <laughs> 498. Yeah. And as soon as I hit 500, I was out. Yep. But that meant I had 500 words I wouldn't have had otherwise. Well, and it's very satisfying as you start to hit a certain... You start to hit these these landmarks. And you're like, oh, I'm at ten thousand words now. Yeah. You know, the whole book's probably seventy thousand or eighty thousand, and now I'm yeah. and now I'm at ten, and now I'm at twenty. And and I know I I, I keep track of word count when I'm going because I just find that is. I don't know if I was a race car driver, I'd be looking at the mileage. I don't know. Yeah, that, it, yeah. it is just it is just that that thing that when the book starts to feel like a book. Uh, it makes a difference. Yeah, yeah. I, and I, I, apparently I do this every time because my wife Holly reminds me. Uh, when I start a book, and for a long time, I, I will say to her, you know, I don't think it's a book. Mm. I don't think there's enough in there to be a book in the end. Yeah. And and luckily she's able to say, you know, you say this every time. Yeah. And, uh, and <laughs> But I remember there was a point with this book where, uh, I, I don't know what it was like for you. When I first started publishing... I mean, it had been a dream for so long that uh, I would always uh, think, just before the book came out, uh, I'm going to die before this comes out. <laughs> I, I'll, I won't live to see this. I know it. And uh, and with and I got over that. But with this book, when I got it, when I was about halfway through it, I started thinking, I hope I don't die before I finish this. 
because I really want, I felt like I was really into something and I, I really wanted to finish telling that story. Yeah. So, and I had the sense that I was not going to make it. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so the word count is really important for me as a, as a marker and um, to, to show I'm making some progress. But there's also that story that you have to feel like you're into. And for me, it took me to about halfway. And then I was like, yeah, no, I'm, this is a story. And, and I know how to get to the end now. This book feels a little different than the others, I think, because in the others, Newfoundland felt like it was the central character in a lot mm. of ways. Whereas this book the 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 kids are the the two children are yeah. and they happen to be in Newfoundland and it's very vivid the descriptions and everything about where they are but it just felt a little different yeah I, and i had that sense too like i think i've i've always said that uh one of my main uh goals in writing the books that i've written up to now have been to to give us a true sense of Newfoundland, mm-hmm. of the place and the, the culture and the people. Um, and in that sense, uh, you know, Newfoundland has been kind of the main character. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if not the main character, then definitely <laughs> yeah. second in line. <laughs> um, and with this story, uh, the, the location of the story felt kind of almost beside the point mm-hmm. in terms of what was important. Um, now, in the telling of it, of course... Newfoundland rears its head all the way through just because what they have to do, those two children, to survive involves uh, a constant struggle with the place that they're living. Um, so, yeah, it's almost like the, the the terrain is working against them. Yeah, and that's always been my sense, yeah. you know, that Newfoundlanders are famous for their love for the island, but, yeah. but it's not a reciprocal relationship. <laughs> like the island does not love them back. <laughs> In the same way. And um, so, I mean, I think people could probably read this book and think that Newfoundland is is completely central. It just didn't feel like that was what was important to me, right. I think, when I was writing it. What I was really wanting to do was to tell the story of these two youngsters. And that meant I had to change how I normally write in a lot of ways. Like, uh, I, I have a propensity to complicate. Right. Right? And... Uh, Part of how I write books is that if I have a character who's a walk-on, I start asking questions about what their background is and what relationship they have to other characters and how can I incorporate them in a way that complicates the plot in a pleasurable way. Yeah, yeah. You know, I have a tendency to circle on my stories and um, just kind of meander. And whenever I found myself doing that this time, I said, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not, you know, when the when the beetle appeared, there were all kinds of opportunities to complicate right. his role in the book. I thought, not doing it. Mary Orm, I, you know, I started thinking, well, maybe I could do yeah. something. And I was like, no, it, this is you, a book about the children. And do you think also that comes with feeling more in control of your art and your capabilities that you don't feel the need to complicate, that you go, you know what, people will, uh, will, people will get this and it will still be deep and still have right. meaning. I, I don't know if it was, I mean, I hope it means that I have no. more control. <laughs> Partly it was um, me finally recognizing what some of my writerly tics are right. and, and deciding that because I don't want to repeat myself as much as possible, um, 
that I was going to like just consciously not do those things. Um, And also, and because this story I thought would be served by not doing those things. So it was an opportunity to try to tell a story differently Mm -hmm. just by staying with these two characters all the way through and, and in a straight, as straight a line as I could, uh, to could do it, yeah. Uh, there are Newfoundlandisms yeah. uh, throughout the book, though, which should come as no surprise. But I took note of a couple of them. Uh, my little Blozabella, right? That's such a great thing. And uh, I'm not even sure how to say this. I've only ever read it. A, a D Y W of snow. What do you say? A Dwy. A Dwy. Yeah. What's a Dwy? A Dwy of snow is uh, when snow when it isn't snowing, but snow blows in. Ah, so it's right. just a little drift of snow, but yep. it hasn't, it wasn't snowing before that. It's not snowing after <laughs> it. Right? So my grandmother used to say, yeah. oh, we're having a little dwy of snow now. I've never heard that yeah, before. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, the Dictionary of Newfoundland English has been a, like an incredible resource for yeah. me. And like my favorite book, I, I just go back to it all the time just to read it for the like sheer inventiveness yeah. of the the way that people use the language. And it's also full of detail about how people lived as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I've mined that for every book I've written. Well, the language would come directly from the way they were living. I mean, it's it's a living thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And there was the thing I always say about, uh, about Newfoundland English is that because there was no systemized uh, school system mm-hmm. for so long, there was no one to say, you're not speaking correctly, <laughs> sir. That's not how you say that. That's right. Or that word does not exist. You know, and people, so people were free to make it up as they went. Yeah. And, uh, and they did. And it was incredibly, you know, it was Shakespearean in its breadth and in its inventiveness. Blozabella. What does that mean? It's just, a, it's a, it's a term of endearment. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And, uh, and in this book, uh, a lot of the language that I got, especially in the dialogue, when the sailors arrive and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Uh, I realized when the book is set around the end of the 18th century, so a lot of the characters who wash up on shore there actually would have been Europeans as opposed to Newfoundlanders. Right. Um, so I thought, well, I better, I better figure out how those people spoke. And there's this great book called uh, A Dictionary of the Vulgar Tongue. <laughs> and vulgar at the time would have meant common. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, it was uh, compiled in 1785. So a lot of the language and a lot of, the, especially the insults, mm-hmm. um, come from that one as well. So, and that was, it reminded me a lot of the Dictionary of Newfoundland English, just in terms of how uh, entertaining the way that the common folk spoke to one another was. Let's talk uh, a little bit about, and we'll go back a little bit for this, about why you became a writer. Not so much how, mm. but why you became a writer. Do you think... I mean, we talked about the oral tradition a little bit that is so uh, vibrant and and still alive in Newfoundland, but there must have been a book. You must have picked up something when you were a kid that went, oh, like this. Yeah, I I read a fair bit when I was a kid, like certainly a lot more than my my brothers and my my, most of my friends. But uh, even in high school, like English was not my subject, Hmm. you know, I... I don't know if I had a subject yeah, in high yeah, school, yeah, to be yeah, honest, yeah. but um, my first year university, and I, I have to qualify this because at the time in Newfoundland, we only went to grade 11. Right. So my first year university, I was 16, turning yeah. 17. So I was still a kid, but uh, we did, uh, I went to school with no idea what I wanted to do. I took five general courses, and in, 
English, we did all poetry in that first term. And we had a massive anthology uh, called uh, An Introduction to Poetry, British American Canadian. And I have no idea why, but I like something clicked. Yeah. And I was I don't I didn't know if poetry was fit to eat to be honest, <laughs> but I I I thought I whatever this is it speaks to I want to yeah. do this and it wasn't even just that it speaks to me but I really wanted to do whatever whatever those poems were doing to me as a reader right I wanted to write something that did that to readers wow is how it felt like that sense of communication of passing something to another person yeah. And I mean, I remember the day I went to the library and went to the very back of the the carol at the very back of the library to write a poem. I had it in my head to do this thing, and I was hooked. Like I just that. So I was. I probably was seven. I had just turned seventeen by then. And what do you think your influence? Because you would have been listening to rock and roll, where yeah. lyrics and things did that bleed in there? Were your first poems any good? No, no, of course not. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it that's, takes time. Yeah, no, they were. Awful. And, <laughs> and I was listening to a lot of yeah. uh, music, and, um, but none of that influenced what I was writing. Really? Yeah, and which is part of the reason that we were so bad, because I was trying to write like the poets that I was finding in, right. like in the anthology. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. And it, it took a long time to, f- to find a voice that, was, that felt authentic. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time my mother read something that I'd written, which was an appalling thing to be part of uh, just because I had been so private about yeah. it but uh, and my mom's not a big poetry reader right but when she finished it and I wanted to shoot her but she said it doesn't sound like you oh. and now I realize just how right she was mm-hmm. about that and it took me a long time to find a voice that was mine and I think that that's probably everybody's Process. I, I think that it probably feels it's scary to find the voice that that sounds like you. Right. I, I, I for some reason I don't know. It's hard. You have it in life. Why can't you write it down yeah. on the page? But they seem to be there. Seems to be a disconnect that you have to kind of really battle through to get it in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that the voice you have in life and the one that's on the page, they're different animals. Mm. And the the trick is to find a way to translate what will work. Right. from the voice that you have in life that will work on the page. And, you know, I went through a lot of uh, phases. Like I had, Al Purdy was a huge influence. Yeah, yeah. And Al's a terrible influence, <laughs> right? He is. He's, because his, his uh, voice is his persona. Right. Nobody writes like Al Purdy for a reason. <laughs> and I tried for a long time. But I, he was one of the first really great writers who was writing in a way that I recognized as something that uh, was out of my own life, like hearing my parents speak and that sort of thing. And that was a huge influence, I think. And uh, when I finally got there, or when I got closer, um, it turned out that my father was one of the biggest influences Mm -hmm. because uh, my dad, of course, my dad dropped out of school to fish and uh, was not a reader uh, outside of the the Reader's Digest and the newspaper. That's right. but he was a storyteller. Like my dad was the kind of person who had a repertoire, and you yeah. could request particular <laughs> stories. Uh, and he had he had a real gift for narrative and uh, and for language and metaphor. Like he uh, he wouldn't even know what that word meant, yeah, but yeah. he knew how to do it. 
And a lot of his stories were funny, 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 and then at the end there was this like little dark turn. And, uh, and the second book I published was a book called Hard Light with Brick Books in 98. And that was me stealing dad's best stories. And where I wasn't stealing his stories, I was trying to tell stories in the exact same fashion. Right. So I, I think that had a, a huge impact on how I ended up writing and the voice that it's ended up in, in these novels as well. Michael, that's our time. Thank you so much for this. What yeah, a pleasure to speak to you. The it, book... Thanks. It's been really great to be here. The book is called The Innocence, available wherever you buy fine books. Uh, Check it out. It's a really, really, really beautifully written uh, and compelling book that'll make you think and also kind of put you in a place that uh, maybe you've never imagined you'd be. 